Hi, welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez and I'm here today with the author of Move a Little, Lose a Lot, Dr. James Levine. How are you doing, doctor? Hi, Miguel. How are you today? Good. Doctor, I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, I got the chance of uh, meeting you over Hawthorne Education Center. I remember. Yes. Fantastic. Yes. You were doing their promoting uh, physical life, uh, lifestyle. Uh, yes. And I was there promoting. It was there. I was. I used to work at uh, public health for the eliminating health disparities. Yes. And I got... I got to meet you there, and you had like a this desk uh, in a computer and a laptop, and you were trying to invite people to Try experience it, out. it. Try it out. And yes. I'm talking about, I would say, probably 10 years ago, yes. 8, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, can you share with us what was that about? I mean, it's a fantastic um, journey. Um, when we first met, at Hawthorne, what we were trying to do was to suggest to people that one way of helping prevent diabetes, deal with early hypertension, help children who aren't learning as brilliantly as they might do, would be to have an active lifestyle. And I don't mean necessarily going to the gym, playing sport, which is all wonderful if mm -hmm. that's what you like. What we were interested in is whether we could help people get movement into their day, whether we could break up sitting time and get people up and moving. And we showed up at, at Hawthorne. We already actually had a program with refugees from Somalia helping those individuals who are very much prone to develop overweight and obesity and diabetes from preventing gaining pounds when they came in as refugees. And what we discovered was that if we could actually get people really excited about the power of movement, not just for their bodies and their health, which are sort of slightly disassociated from everyday living. I mean, I don't spend my day thinking about my health. I think my day spend thinking about spending time with family and friends and parents. That's what I think about during, mm -hmm. you know. If we could encourage people to enjoy moving throughout their day as part of everyday existence, we realized we could you know, we could impact people's lives and help people who are dealing with diabetes and blood pressure and heart problems and joint problems and back problems, but also prevent weight gain and prevent people from developing chronic diseases. And this could be for, like you said, from kids to elders Absolutely. who didn't, you can do that change every day. Yeah, that's what's so cool about this. Just in the, in the same way that we've delivered programs into schools to encourage movement, um, we worked with the STEM Charter Academy in Central Rochester to do mm -hmm. exactly this. You can also go into offices and encourage people to become more active. And you can even work with people who are very, very senior in society, people in their 80s, and encourage them to be active. And what we're really interested in isn't necessarily, you know, everybody needs to put, buy gym equipment, everyone needs to buy no. special clothing. No, exactly. Everybody can take the hand of your child and go for a lovely walk, can meet with one's parents and say, let's go for a walk in the park in Silver Lake. Let's, let's come together. Oh, did you hear about an exercise class in, you know, in downtown Rochester? It's not for the super fit. It's for everybody. You know, we can all, you know, 
Or how about dancing? We haven't been dancing together, one could say, to one's partner or spouse yeah. for years. Let's go dancing together. Let's switch off the TV and go for a walk this evening. Of course, it's terribly cold in Rochester right now, but let's go down to Apache Mall and, and do some window shopping rather than online shopping. And if we worked out that if we could get people to buy into this idea, even 10 years ago, we could actually help people not only with their health, which is very important, yeah. not only to close the health disparity gap, which is critically important in America, but also to become happier and brighter and more enthusiastic about their everyday experience. Um, I mean, for me, I, I, you know, the older you get, uh, I recognize the, I go to sleep nice when I have uh, my physical activity through the day. And I'm talking just going up the stairs, uh, going to the grocery st grocery store. Like you said, I spend, <laughs> when I go grocery shopping, you just walk through the aisles and, and walking the dog, those little things uh, without counting, you know, some people might go to the gym. Like you said, some people might be attracted to that, but uh, I can, I can sleep better. And and I feel better the next day, and I'm happier because you know when you don't have a good uh, sleep, affects you through the whole day. You get headaches, and you're just cranky, and not being productive. But uh, where? So, let me, Miguel, yeah. let me please pick up on a very interesting point you make. The interaction between being active throughout your day and sleep is very, very important. Professor Virant Summers here at the Mayo Clinic has done groundbreaking work exactly in this area. And what he discovered will make perfect sense to people listening mm -hmm. to the podcast, but is profound. He did these extraordinary experiments where they brought people onto a research center and they deprived them of sleep by about a third of their normal sleep. So if you slept nine hours, for example, should you mm -hmm. be so lucky, <laughs> you were actually restricted by the experimenters to six hours, so 30% sleep reduction. Now, all of us who live normal lives know what that means, right? If you've got mm -hmm. kids who wake you up at four in the morning, you know what I mean. But mm -hmm. also many of us, like if you've got an extra job or you have to get a, a paper written or a report, you know, complete, you know, we stay up late. We often sleep deprived. Now, what actually happens to a person when they sleep deprived themselves or they get sleep deprived because of their work or their job or their stress? Here's what happens. People for a given hour of wakefulness do not become, and we all know this, become less active per hour. Overall, for the uh -huh. whole day, activity changes the same, but, but people become less active per hour of wakefulness. Now, why is that? It's, think about the last time you didn't get a good night's sleep. It's, it's obvious. I'm so tired. I don't want to go for a walk. I'm so tired. I'm just going to slump in front of the TV, and that's all I can do. That's all I can handle, right? We all know that. But also what happens is that we eat more. And in that experiment Dr. Summers did, people ate 500 calories more. That's a lot. And we all know that too, right? When we're sleep deprived and we don't get a good night's sleep, number one, we don't want to do active things. We don't want to go for a walk at Apache Mall. We don't want to go dancing. No. We want to slump in front of the TV. But also what do we do? We eat that much more. And so one can immediately appreciate why there is so much interest in understanding the link 
between sleep deprivation, which millions of Americans experience, and obesity, which millions of Americans experience as well. And so part of our programs, when we encourage offices and schools and communities and old age homes to become more active environments, is to make the critical point that a good night's sleep is a very important part of the program as well. Um, doctor, are you... So you you used to live here. You used to work here in, in Minnesota, Rochester, Minnesota. Now you are in Arizona. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Well, actually, we have a program. We have programs here in Rochester, and we okay. also work in Arizona. Yes. And you do research. Yes, for, sir. For the people who's listening, mm. and how research, uh, in this case, what is the field that you work on? So they get so idea. What, absolutely, of course. So, Miguel, what's really important is that uh, for the since the 10 years mm -hmm. we've last seen each other the scientific world has changed in in this field originally 10 years ago when I first mm -hmm. met you and we were talking about how to encourage people to become more active regardless of their financial status and regardless of of whether they didn't like going to gyms, it doesn't matter because everyone can get more active into their day. At that point in time, this was all viewed as a little bit revolutionary. In fact, the team presented data at one of the very, very large US scientific congresses, and one of the senior scientists stood up, ironically, <laughs> at the back of the auditorium and screamed at, I was the talker at this, and said, this is all nonsense, this, is, this can't be so important. But 10 years has passed, and that individual has been proven wrong. The NIH consensus conducted last year suggested that there are 34 different chronic diseases and conditions directly associated with sitting too much. They are Some of them are the obvious ones, diabetes and high blood pressure. You know, intuitively, we can understand why being inactive and gaining too much body weight and obesity is associated with sitting too much. Obvious. Interestingly, also, joint problems are associated with excess sitting. And for any of us who spent our day bent over a computer screen, you know, with bent shoulders and aching back, terrible wrist problems and yeah, so new, on. New... Yes, it's terrible for you, yeah. right? We know why joint problems are associated with too much sitting. The two other areas that are less obvious but very, very important are as follows. Number one. People's mood is lower if you sit too much. People feel brighter and happier if you get up and move more throughout your day. And so therefore, perhaps, it isn't a surprise that depression, which so many of us go through, I've been through depression, many people have been through depression in their lives, is prevented and helped by getting up and moving more. Very, very important. We feel brighter and happier. And we all know this. If you had a very, very stressful day, is it a good idea, really, to go home and drink a large bottle or a large glass of an alcoholic beverage? No, that is not a good idea. Is it a good idea to go for a walk and think it through and de-stress through having a lovely walk in Soldier's Field, even dressed up nicely in the winter, or going out with a loved one, or even one of your kids and sharing a community of walking, or going to an exercise class? Is that a healthy way of dealing with stress? Yes. And not only is it intuitively obvious that that is a good idea, the data now 
data upon data upon data, study upon study, demonstrate that this is a very effective solution to dealing with stress and preventing depression. Similarly, people become more creative and more productive at work if they are more active during their workday. Kids become better at school, grades improve 10 to 15% on average, when they are moving throughout their school day. Mm, amazing. What a way of closing the educational gap yeah. that we in, in America are fighting right now with the rest of the world. Lastly and importantly as well, the data are now quite convincing that even cancer risk is associated with sitting too much as well. So when people get up and move, the more they move, the more they diminish their risk of certain malignancies. Breast cancer is an example. And so as you're listening to this, you get the sense that, oh my goodness, if you're thinking about this from health, we're talking here from the Mayo Clinic, getting up and moving is a critical element in being a healthy person. One of our main jobs as doctors is to prevent patients from coming to ever see us or need us. And one way of doing that is to get up and move throughout your day. Doctor, question, personal question. How was your childhood? Were you, do you, do you grow up in a big city, small mm. city, how so, active? So I think the important you? things, the important things to Because share I'm thinking mm. big urban cities, mm. people who might be listening in Chicago right now, mm. how can, you know, you're growing in a big city, how is different from here at Lucky, we're lucky here in Rochester. Correct. Um, I grew up in the center of London, right in the heart of London. Okay. And so let me share with you a couple of personal experiences. Uh, let me share with you one negative experience, mm -hmm. and let me share with you one positive experience. I grew up in the center of London. I have a terrible recollection. I can remember the boy's name. His first name was Peter. I know his last name. Of going to school, and this boy, Peter, followed me into the boy's toilet, locked the toilet door, and then took my head and pushed it down the toilet. Why did he do that? He did it because I was overweight. He said, you fatty. That's what he called me, this boy Peter. I could tell you his last name, but I won't. <laughs> and he, this boy basically terrorized me for about a year. He called me fatty. We, if we were in school or playing sport, you know, like all the boys play football, mm -hmm. soccer that would be, at lunchtime, he would say, no one pick fatty, he's useless, and that was me. And I lived with that stigma and the put-down of, of my peers as a child for a very, very painful year. Interestingly, I will tell you, because people often, when it comes to bullying and stigmatization associated with obesity, for those of your listeners who've had to deal with this, it doesn't just make you feel bad about your body it actually makes you feel sort of on guard all of the time. It makes you feel as though somebody is about to pick on you or hit you or say negative things. So every time you have a conversation with somebody, instead of being positive and forward in your thinking, you become quite caged and quite cautious regarding everything you do. I was aged about 12 at the time. That's a very important time for a boy because you're going through puberty, you're developing in into into a uh, into a grown up and so 
you know, for, for anyone out there listening to this podcast who knows what I'm talking about, all I can tell you is you're not alone. Um, being bullied because of your weight is very, very common. We're fighting it. We're trying to find good solutions to it. And if it's something that, that you're listening to and upsets you, please go and have a chat with your healthcare provider and doctor and talk about it openly because a, a little bit of counseling can really help people in this regard. But I'm telling you, it's very common, Miguel. It's very, very common. So that's a negative experience. A positive experience was I used to live, I, used to, I was very honored and very lucky to go to a very good school. And like I've actually met, I met a, a, actually a, a refugee in, in Minneapolis, and she explained to me that in order for to get her daughter in an open enrollment fantastic school, she would take her daughter on two bus journeys, and she had her third job near her girl's school so she could take her girl back right across Minneapolis. Extraordinary woman. I mean, I, I, was, I was literally, this is what people do for their child's education. My parents were the same. In our household, education was everything. Everything. No, my parents never spoke to me about doing homework because when I got home, I did my homework. That was it. And my school was, if I commuted on, it was two buses and a subway, an hour and a half across London. Now, I don't know, just thinking about it now, talking to you, I've never really connected it before, but I wonder whether it wasn't somehow related to this sort of bullying thing. Because what I started to do was started to cycle to school. It took me an hour every day to cycle to school. I had a name for my bicycle. Um, Matilda was the name of my hmm. bicycle. Was it BMX or no, a, it a was cruiser? No, it was not. It was, it was actually... I, I got an after-school job selling tickets for Wimbledon, and I used the money to buy a Peugeot racing bike. Mm. That's what it, Matilda was, a Peugeot, orange Peugeot racing bike, since you ask. And I started cycling to school. And it took me an hour, just under an hour, 45, 50 minutes each way. So it was an hour and 40 minutes cycling a day. Rain or shine, every, I never missed, ever. And I would cycle through Hyde Park in London, which is very beautiful, and so on. I'd cycle across the motorways, actually, as well. And interestingly, over that period of time, several things happened to me. I wasn't a smart kid at school because uh, it was a very good school, and, and the other kids were smarter than me. I actually failed to graduate high school and had to reset the last year of high school. I lost progressively, as a kid, perhaps 20 or 30 pounds, but I came very muscular. Just by... By cycling to school every day across mm -hmm. London. Weirdly, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's, it's also probably related to these sort of quite awful bullying things. I took up karate. I became a black belt in karate. I became a fencer. I got to the Olympic team. Um, and Do you make it? No, I didn't get to the Olympics. I got onto the squad. In so which, was, in which uh, in, year? In foil. Oh, uh, when, in Moscow, where we okay. didn't go to the Olympics, actually. Um, anyway, I'm drifting. Um, <laughs> but the point I'd like to make to the listeners is that all of us have our personal stories. And we all go through difficult times in our lives. All of us. All of us. And I think I'm very lucky, whether it's genetic or whether my parents were very kind and really kind of backed me. But I found positive solutions to some of the experiences I had. And I think as you're listening to this podcast, if you would join me in that, 
I think that would be a very good thing. To take to make something positive out of something negative, I think is a very good way of behaving. And it, it's not something we can always do by ourselves. Sometimes it requires us to take the hand of a mentor or a parent or a brother. I have a very, very close brother or friends and have them help us. We all need help in life. Help us switch bad things into positive things. And if we can do that, I think good health is available to all of us. And I think that's what our program has shown. I very recently had a very strange experience. I was at a very big conference. And the director of the conference came up to me and he said, you know, he's been reading, the, I wrote a recent book called Get Up. And it's not just about getting up for our bodies, it's about getting up in our minds, in our response to situations, about taking a positive attitude towards our everyday existence, how we interact with people. There's so much negativity in the world. There are so many opportunities to switch negatives to positives. And too much information. Oh my goodness, we're overwhelmed, aren't we? Overwhelmed. And he came up to me and he said, he's just been through a very difficult situation in his own personal life. And he's sort of taken this mantra of taking a negative into a positive. He's getting himself healthy. He's having healthy relationships. He's developing better relationships with his children. And that's all about being active when you think about it. It's about an active outlook, not just in our bodies, but in our minds. And just like we were talking about sleeping, how sleep links to activity, it's also true with our bodies. Active bodies are active minds, but also active minds are active bodies. And I think if we can start to bring all this together into our own lives, each of us as individuals, each of us with struggles, we all have struggles. What would you think? And make uh, them active and positive. We're onto something. What would you say for parents who has kids and uh, they say, oh, my kids are imperactive. Imper a hyperactive. A hyperactive. Yes, of course. We had a very interesting, we've had very exper interesting experiences over the years with children who are diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder. Now, as you know, as many of your listeners know, hyperactivity disorder is, is often overdiagnosed in the United States. There are many, many millions of children on medications they probably don't need. And there are many children also who indeed do have a hyperactivity disorder. So, of course, there's a spectrum, like many things. We were asked very early on in this program, as you say, with, the, with desks and active classrooms, to address the question. The bouncing balls. Bouncing yeah. balls, everything, correct. We were asked very early on to address the question, is could these types of programs where children are, are given opportunities to be more active during their day, could they help children diagnosed with ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder? Originally, I said, I don't know. Let's find out. And what we observed was one child in particular. There was al there's always one kid who inspires all of us, right? And this was a child. I won't say what city he or she was in. It was a boy, I'll tell you. And this boy was diagnosed with hyperactivity disorder, was a D-grade student. He was so commonly asking for a class, to, for a toilet break, that the teacher said, you don't need to put up your hand anymore, you can just go. And three times every single lesson, he would go for a corridor break to go to the toilet. He would sit at the back of the class. He was a D-grade student. 
He was bouncing around. He was quite disruptive when allowed to be. His parents were involved but couldn't do anything. The kid was put in Ritalin. It was not a positive story. It so happened we were doing one of our active classroom programs there where children were literally encouraged to be active. Now, you have to appreciate that what I'm about to say is greatly biased by the following fact. Whenever a teacher and a principal and a school district enable us to come in and develop active classrooms, as is happening right across California right now, that means that the teacher is very dynamic and exciting in of him or herself. Yeah? The teacher is encouraging of something dynamic. There. A dynamic yeah. teacher. Yeah. Very important. Because that's really the critical part. But nonetheless, this very dynamic teacher encourages us to come in and build this program for the whole classroom. The kids were allowed to be active during the classroom. They had the balls. Some of them were allowed to walk up and down the classroom. There were silent treadmills in the classroom that were limited to two miles an hour. They did active learning as they walked around the corridors. They did physics in the gymnasium. Very, very dynamic teacher. A middle-aged, middle, uh, middle school kid. We didn't know this, and we didn't anticipate it at all. But the boy I'm telling you about, his name isn't, but we'll pretend his name is Michael just for the sake of this discussion. This boy, Michael, had a complete revolution. Unbelievable. Diagnosed with ADHD on medication. First of all, he became calm. His parents told us that when Michael got home after this program started, he would actually have a snack and sit down and do homework voluntarily. The parents, of course, prompted him, but it, that, would, that would never happen before. The parents, the father actually wrote me this beautiful long letter explaining that his son would come home very tense in his body and his attitude, but came home relaxed. So his father, who wrote me the letter, explained in detail how this had revolutionized this Michael's home life. At school, what happened was unbelievable. He went from a D student to an A minus student. Off medication, the teacher commented that the boy no longer took any bathroom breaks. Remember, he was leaving mm -hmm. every class three times. His behavior, he became a contributor to the class. And all the only real intervention here was to allow children to move. So this boy was allowed, and particularly boys this happens to, to burn off that extra energy, that extra tension that often boys can have, particularly as they are growing very fast. And this inspired us to propagate these programs across other children with ADHD. We were asked to go to another school and develop another program. And this program involved kids and there were, I think, if I remember correctly, about 10 to 15 percent of all the classrooms had children with diagnosed ADHD. Those kids were allowed to have ergonomic exercise bikes. They were, they were silent, mm -hmm. and the kid could sit at the back of the class and cycle. The student could sit at the back of the class and cycle while studying to help them with their ADHD issues. Now, the trouble was, here's what happened. The program was so successful that parents complained. What do parents complain about? The parents complained that their children who didn't have ADHD were coming home and saying to the parents, so-and-so in the class has this bike. I want one too. And the class and the school, which was a um, charter school, mm -hmm. raised the money to have all kids in certain classrooms have access to cyclergometry bicycles. 
It's all silent, all low speed, non-disruptive. And the average grades of these kids of the whole classroom started to improve and improve. And of course, behavior was phenomenal. There was no disruption in the classroom. Children behave immaculately when given these programs. In another program, last example, because a lot of this, as you're listening to mm -hmm. it, it involves teams coming in and resources. And, it's, and, and as you're listening to this on the podcast, you may think to yourself, oh, this isn't applicable to my, to my school. school because it requires all this equipment. Not so. In Idaho Falls, we had a mother contact us saying she'd read about the research, she'd, research, she'd seen the data, and she had contacted somebody from one of the national laboratories, which happened to also be in Idaho Falls. So she'd got some local scientists, all done by one mother. And she said she wanted her classroom, her, her son's classroom, to be changed into an active classroom. She wanted that. I said to her, and Gabe, who works with me, said to her, OK, we'll come out and help you. Obviously, we did it ourselves on, on, on our own time. No fees, nothing. And we just met with her. We met with the principal. We explained the science, the data. The principal said, OK, meet with the teacher. We met with the head teacher of these, of these children. He said, the data are irrefutable. This could help our children, but we haven't got any money. Now, I assure you, Miguel, we, Gabe and I didn't do this. This mother did everything. She went to local um, shops. She went to local businesses. She went to local foundations. She literally raised the money herself for this school so that every child in the school would have a specific desk that allowed the child not only to stand but also to kick a kick bar under the desk. They're sort of like these little kick bars so kids can sort of be active whilst they're learning. And the teacher bought into this whole philosophy of encouraging, uh, encouraging the children to move more throughout the day. The data from this, these studies were extraordinary and published. They showed not only did the kids move more, as you would expect, but the kids learnt better. And the, and the data was, again, irrefutable. Their grades improved. Behavior attention improved, all documented. Their spelling improved. Their mathematics improved. Kids went home brighter. Parents reported that their kids were happier to come home and do homework. And so, of course, their learning improves even better. Their motivation to school improves. And to me, the, the, the mother very kindly, and not necessary, but we invited us to come back at the end of her first, I think, two semesters to celebrate. The school did a whole celebration. And to meet the not only this inspirational mother, but to meet the children and their parents who came to this sort of thanksgiving for this, was one of the most moving experiences. We had parents with tears coming down their faces about how their child had never felt inspired to do projects before, had never want. We had children, we had mother, one mother came up to me and said, you know, her daughter, let's call her Jilly, that's not her real name, Jilly has never once spoken about going to college before. Now she insists that she's going to get a scholarship and she's going to go to college. So what I'm trying to tell you, Miguel, is the same story is when children are given these opportunities to move, they will do so, but not just in their bodies, in their minds too. And this washes it's into... It's good for your brain. It's good for your brain. It's good for your soul. It washes into your family. When kids go home and tell their mums and their dads, many families now have grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles. Many parents don't have two parents. Many families don't have two parents. 
But when they explain what's happening at school, parents say, you know what, I've got to do something too. I'm going to quit smoking. We're all going to have active Wednesdays. We're going to do an active holiday. We're going to do stuff together as a family. It all washes backwards and forwards. And this then spreads to communities. Schools are hubs for communities. We do a lot of programs in Arizona in public libraries in very, very poor areas. And the responses from these families and children would not would would make your heart double in warmth it there is so much capacity in communities in schools in children in adults in grandmas and grandpas and aunties and uncles there is so much capacity to inspire ourselves and each other to have active dynamic living that the greatness that can come from this is immeasurable do you think adults forget to play I'm, I'm asking you this because uh, my wife is involved in a preschool mm. and uh, she asked the teachers, like, the kids need to go by law outside and play, mm. even if it's 20 up, up until 20 degrees. And sometimes the parents are the ones who say, no, no, no. Or the teachers like, are you real? Are you serious? And like, no. And once the kids are in their suits, they're having fun. They're playing. For them, it's, it's just another day. And they're just playing and and thinking like, well, maybe as adults we forget to play. Or so, Miguel. In in answering your question, I must immediately make a public apology. The person I'm about to reference, I cannot remember his name, but he's easily found on the internet. I once showed up. I was once invited to give a a lecture at a, a, a very big conference, and I was giving a lecture after a gentleman who's in California who runs an institute called, I think, the Adult Play Institute. And what he advocates, please, I encourage you, to, if you're listening, to look this mm -hmm. up on the internet. What he argues is just what you've said. As, a, as, as adults, we've forgotten to play. Now, I will be honest with you. When I saw that I was giving a lecture from the Mayo Clinic, scientific data, studies, 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 data, 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 after this person, I will be honest with you, I, I, I thought to myself, this, you know, of course, our approach is the better approach. Everything is with data and experiments and it's very serious, very serious. Mm. This gentleman got up and spoke. His life's work has been dedicated to this idea that adults forget to play. And as I listened to him and I opened my mind, I realized that he, that you and he are absolutely right. I was I was floored. If he made the point, none of this is from our research, it's all his work. He made the point that if you look across the animal kingdom, animals of all ages play. In fact, I don't know if you know this. I used to be a uh, deer dear colleague of the chimpanzee research team out in Kenya. And they published wonderful work showing that chimpanzees into adulthood actually play games that look like football. They actually throw things at each other and so on and so forth. And you realize that in our DNA, if you like, in our design as people is playfulness, right? So in other words, when you go home and you're interacting with your wife, as you've mentioned, 
Of course, there are serious matters that need to be discussed, getting the kids to their activities, preparing nice food for the family, having proper discussions about home finances and important matters. But also there must be time for play, having a laugh, doing things spontaneously, enjoying each other's company. And I think, as I've thought about this now over many years, I think this is absolutely correct. I think as adults, we have completely forgotten the importance of playfulness. And let me give you a specific example. We did this at, and this shows you, I mean, we think Mayo Clinic often is this amazing, very, you know, professional organization. And we at the Mayo Clinic often think of ourselves as not having the freedom to play how wrong that is. We did this experiment on West 18, which is the Division of Endocrinology, where what we did is in the break room is we bought art supplies, big pieces of paper, colors, crayons, paints. And we said to people, do you remember what it was like in school when you went and did art? How wonderful that was. Why have we stopped doing that as adults? Why? And we said to people during your lunch hour, we've provided all this art stuff, have some fun, and we're gonna have a competition at the end of the year to see the best piece of art. So we got from that simple little from that simple little experience over 150 works of art. And I will tell you that some of these pieces were extraordinary. Some were doodles, some were a laugh, some were people doing pictures of each other, like portraits, it was hysterical. Some wrote little poems, which are sort of quite funny at times. Um, and some poems were quite serious, I should tell you, by the way. Some poems were quite serious, quite, quite, quite serious. But what I realized is that, if, again, if you give people the permission, whether that's in your home, in your workplace, to be playful and interact in a positive and fun way, people rise to the occasion. We all want to play. We all love to play, but we have to be given the permission. And that can be in our relationships. That can be in our workplaces. That can be in our leisure time, whether that's in your church group. We, you know, church meetings don't only have to be serious discussions about raising money for the roof. <laughs> Sometimes it can be about, let's all go for a day trip out to, you know, cross-country skiing at Soldier's Field, wherever it may be, and let's all have positive, playful time together. And interestingly, of course, when you think about sort of the corporate space, they do these things at tremendous expense where they all go off for team building experiences, where they all go in the mud and they go on these courses and all this kind of stuff. And it costs a fortune. But really what that's getting at is this idea that playfulness is a natural human behavior and brings people together because we like to play just like we did when we were little children. And if you think back to the pleasures you got, even if you were somebody who, like me, sat in the play pit, and I used to build things with sand, and, and I was quite an, an isolated, sort of quite solitary child, as I've told you why already. Mm -hmm. I loved to play in the sand and build things. I, when I was included in, in, in playing with other kids, I loved those interactions. And I think if, you, if each of you think back for one moment as to the joys of playing as a little child, wouldn't that be wonderful to unlock it and play as adults too? Yeah. And your studies uh, that you mentioned, do you find any relationship 
now with the levels of poverty and how health affects and and like sedentary life <clears throat> absolutely we do we published two big the team published two big pieces of work one of them was done with the cdc what is the cdc for people who's oh, not I, I'm familiar so, with I, I i do so apologize the center for disease control in atlanta and what we did is we looked at data for about 100 million Americans based on their zip code. So what we were able to do was aggregate. We, were able, we Ag were able to average okay. people's daily activity levels, not based on individual measurements, but based on where they live, their zip code. And we also had for that zip code financial data, obviously, and geographical data too. And what we dis what we discovered was actually quite halting to me, quite disturbing. We found that based on your zip code could be predicted how active or inactive you are. So if you live in a high activity zip code, you would become more active. What would that look like? What if you live in a low activity zip code, you are more likely to be sitting down more throughout your day. Mm. Now, low activity zip codes in America are also low income zip codes in America. Zip codes where people are more active in the parks, on bicycles, moving around the town more Lights. Those those people living in those zip codes are people living in the most wealthy zip codes. Okay. And in fact, the average wealth of a zip code where you happen to live tracks amazingly with your activity level. So if you happen to be living in a very, very poor area, you are far, 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 far more likely, several fold more likely to be sedentary, to be inactive to sit more and to not be going out on bicycles and so on and so forth if on the other hand you happen to live in the wealthiest zip code in america you're going to be three times more active than people living in the greatest poverty so poverty tracks with inactivity with sedentariness poverty tracks also with obesity and diabetes you may think to yourself well why on earth is that now I'm honored in my work to, I've worked in some of the most luxurious parts of America, but also I've had the honor and privilege of working in some of the poorest parts of America. I worked in inner city Cleveland, right in the middle of the financial crisis where one in three homes in some of the streets we were working in had been foreclosed on. And when I sat, one evening I sat with a mum, about seven in the evening, she'd invited me to like a mini like a mini um, community meeting. Several of her friends were there, and we were talking about how to help children become more active. We were build, we were buying foreclosed plots of land, leveling them and building um, uh, little outdoor gyms so that kids would have a local place to go and play. And we were being very unsuccessful. Things were getting stolen, and it w wasn't working. So we had, we, had, we had these meetings, and I was sitting with a mum, 
and we were talking. Now, the first thing I will tell you, it was about 7.30 in the evening, is while we were talking, there were cracks going off, sounds, crack, 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 like that. And I would say there were about three to six per hour, so about one every 15 minutes. Those cracks were gunshots. Wow. As I was sitting there, and this was now about, I was there two or three hours, we were drinking coffee, and she made some soup, very nice soup, actually. Her son came home, a lovely 14-year-old boy. And I was sitting at a circular table, which was her dining table, and there were three other community members and herself there. The boy came in, and the first thing he did, he was about 14 years old, is he took from his belt a handgun and slapped it onto the table. And his mum said his name. You know you don't put guns on the table. You know that on the dining table. You know that. And he said, sorry, Mum, and took it off. Teaches you a lot of things. Every kid, or many, many kids in that neighborhood carry firearms. Many, many people have several firearms. That sense of violence is part of everyday living. That, that chronic stress of that degree of threat is happening every single minute of the day for mums, for dads, for kids, for grandmas, grandpas, and aunties, and uncles. So that chronic stress has a multitude of health implications in of itself, whether that relates to eating more, whether that relates to fearfulness, as I was describing mm -hmm. when I was, you know, this sense of constant fearfulness. It also relates practically to, for example, if you leave your bike outside unchained, gone. It's, going to, it's gone. Within five, I, uh, within five to ten minutes, I can assure you it happened to me. It also, more importantly, means that mum won't let her son go and play on the little play area, albeit only a block away, because she's worried of drive-by. Drive-by shootings. A drive-by shooting is you're walking down a street and somebody is firing guns that happened, God forbid, God forbid, to hit a, a passing child randomly. It ha I can assure you it happens. And... Of course your mum's not going to let you go out to the playground, right? Of course. Food deserts, because people is not going to invest. It, yeah. it, again, it's, yeah. and again, you can understand why. And when you start to break down what it takes to live in a very troubled area without access to good health care, without access to safety, without access to a basic sense of security, you can immediately appreciate why people want to stay at home, are not prone to do active kind of cool outdoor things, and of course, therefore, are sedentary and gain excess weight. There's one other important paper I want to share with you, mm -hmm. published just yes. this year in Science. With collaborators in Washington, we started to look at the issue of homeless children. We already are doing work with sex trafficked children and some of the health problems they encounter that you mm -hmm. wouldn't believe. And we asked a very simple question. We said every night, I don't know if you know this, there are about 185,000 in America homeless children. Every single night in America, there are almost 200,000 homeless children. It's extraordinary. 
It's incredible. We had somebody here in the podcast who can yes. talk about homelessness uh, and sex trafficking here in Southeast Minnesota. Yeah. So there are these children who are caught in these horrendous traps of extreme poverty with deplorable exposures with food insecurity, meaning that they do not know, they cannot guarantee that they are going to get adequate food to survive. 60%, 60%, two-thirds of these kids who are homeless have food insecurity documented. So we said, oh my goodness, I've, I, as, as, you, as Miguel, as you know, I used to work in sub-Saharan Africa, I've worked in Cote d'Ivoire, I've worked in um, Democratic Republic of Congo. So of course I'm thinking to myself, well, these homeless children must be terribly malnourished. We could probably do a really helpful thing and make sure these kids get adequate vitamins. Very simple, cheap intervention. That's what I was thinking, stupid me. Because do you know what we found? And we looked, city, Kansas City, Minneapolis, uh, LA, multiple cities we gathered data with the Center for Homelessness in Washington. What we discovered was that homeless children are more prone to obesity than even children matched for poverty level. So that would be children living in homes who are living in poverty. Mm -hmm. Now, we've already discussed that poverty is linked with obesity, sedentariness, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and so on. But what is even more extraordinary, so going to the extreme now, you start to get the sense if homeless children have obesity, are we completely misunderstanding what's going on with the causation of obesity in total? Because these children don't even know they're going to get adequate food, but they're substantially overweight. Yes, it's extraordinary. How's that happen? And what you start to realize then, think about what I was telling you about what happened in inner city Cleveland and the mom and the kid and the gun and everything and the gunshots all the time. These kids... These children who live without homes, often in cars, I kid you not, mm -hmm. these kids are under a degree, I mean, honestly, Miguel, I, I honestly do not worry about where my next meal is coming from. I'm very blessed and very fortunate. I, I don't worry. I worry what restaurant I'm going to choose tonight. Yeah, sometimes. But I don't worry if I'm actually going to get enough food to survive. That doesn't cross my so mind. So that stress level. But if you're worried all the time, every hour of every day, where you're going to get your food tonight, and you're worried, and you're worried, God forbid, about drugs, alcohol in children, sex trafficking, these terrible, terrible exposures, can you imagine? I mean, my comment to the listener is none of us, no one on earth, let alone in the United States of America, should be in such fear of these terrible things. This should not happen, but it does. So can you imagine the stress one of these children are exposed to, not knowing they're going to get food, exposed to these terrible A acts of violence? Under. No, And then if they get sick, no access to health care, really? And not even access to a nice warm bed and the sense of security of a home, let alone the guns on the street and so on. And now imagine that child gets a food voucher or their mum gets to a shelter. And, 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 and they get offered, you know, a, a tray of sausages, you know, a big bowl of 
you know, a big tray of, you know, hamburgers, a big vat of chip fries, you know, and candy. It's obvious what's going to happen, right? That kid is going to eat everything in sight until they almost want to be sick because they don't even know where the next meal has come from. Better stock up. Plus the tremendous strength of stress of these all these things we're talking about. No child should have to go through this, but eating for comfort, it's obvious when you think about it. And so when you now take the examples that we just discussed of these children who are homeless, these kids who are exposed to sex trafficking, and people living in extreme poverty, and we understand that all of these individuals are more prone to be, number one, inactive, and number two, not eat healthy food, and develop, therefore, obesity, plus all the chronic diseases that they can't even get health care for, we start to understand that there is a whole axis of health disparities that we haven't even started to crack. We haven't even started to open that shell and really tear this apart. And you might say, oh my goodness, that sounds terribly expensive. But actually what's clever is, of course, healthier people are more productive people, as we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. Healthier people don't need as much health care as unhealthy people and so are less expensive in terms of health care provision we know about. The efficiencies of health care provision get better as people get employed and self-sufficient. And of course, then people get children have less daily stress and are more likely to learn well and ultimately succeed in of themselves. And so I think it is so important, the work you're doing and your team is doing, to open this case of health inequality and start to actually work out how to solve these issues. Because at the end of the day, this is the best thing for the well-being of our nation, for the well-being of individuals and helping tens of thousands of kids and adults who are struggling in these exceedingly stressful and unhealthy ways. Doctor, where can people find about your um, studies and publications? Probably the best case, uh, Miguel. And again, I, I, I mustn't, I, I mean, the team, I, I, I wrote a, a nice book summarizing mm -hmm. everything called Get Up. It's available in P Rochester Public Library. Okay. And if Rochester Public Library want more books, they should tell me and I will buy them myself for the library. So people should go to Rochester Public Library. Yeah. It's a brilliant library and get books or go to your local library and have them order it. But that really explains all of this science. And any social media that you have, do you? Now, Miguel, you're going to be very cross with me. I am not very good at social media. So the best place on the web is to go to the Mayo Clinic, look for James Levine, which is my name, and you'll see all of our research that has been collated by Mayo Clinic, who are very, very good at doing this for us. Doctor, thank you so much for agreeing to come to this podcast and all the work that you do. Uh, anything else that would you like to add? Well, I mean, Miguel, it's such a pleasure and delight uh, to be here. And my only comment to those of you listening is please get up and take even the shortest walk having listened to this because in so doing, you're going to not only inspire your own mind but inspire somebody around you. And don't, get, don't have a guilt on taking breaks also, is that right? 
not having uh, guilt or taking breaks during work, when, especially when you're sitting for too long. You know, you know, we all we all live with guilt, don't we? We all <laughs> live with guilt. I mean, to me, we spoke early on in our conversation about switching negatives into positives. I mean, to me, one of the greatest things we can do, because I'm only this is you know the best way of giving back. The help that all of us get from our mums, our dads, our friends, and so on, is to give help to somebody else. So if you're listening to this, don't don't let somebody else feel guilty. Help them. Be positive. Take them by the hand and say, let's go for a walk together and talk about it. And I think that is the one of the greatest ways of resolving conflict, and one of the most beautiful ways of dealing with stress. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you, everybody. And make sure you follow us on Twitter under Community Board. Go in our page on Facebook. Find us on their pages. Go and look for Community Board. Also on iTunes under Community Board Podcast. Also on SoundCloud. Look for Community Board Podcast. And stay tuned. And if you have something to share with the community, please make sure you contact us. Bye-bye.